Well, good evening, LCM. Tonight is Friday night, May 29th, 2020. The truth is, is we are living in truly revelatory times, and it is so exhilarating for us to be here together. Amen. See, we're in a series called Going on the Offensive, where we're learning how to go full throttle, all out, wide open in the kingdom. We learned that level ground is what we are going to walk on, and if it's not there, it's what we are going to create in front of us because of the power of God. We're learning to have momentum in our walk that no difficulty, no discouragement, no opposition for the enemy is going to stop us from moving forward. And last Sunday, we learned how to have star power. Somebody say star power. Star power. Tonight, our service, our sermon is going to be called Star Wars. excitement out of you, Ludwigson. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, speaking of going on the offensive and Star Wars, in our candlelight service on Wednesday night, most of you heard of some of the testimonies. Like Elder Charlie's heart. Yeah. They got a hyperdrive installed. What? Light speed. He's ready to make that level ground. His heart is back in rhythm, and he is as strong as ever. We also heard the testimony from Daniel and Randy Smith that they have received medical documentation verifying her healing that she is cancer free. Hallelujah. Come on. Judah and Sasha Stevens, they recently received word that the devilish reports of disability and deformity of their unborn son, Jehu, have been destroyed. That Jehu is healthy and on his way. In addition to these testimonies, Pastor Hutchinson was just blessed with a purchased building for the Remnant Church. I'm talking about a house big enough to live in, meet in, and five acres to build on. Come on! Saints, do you hear what God is doing in our midst? He's enabling us to take back spiritual and physical health. He's enabling us to take territory, which incidentally is what the biblical narrative and the Christian life are all about. It's the very thing that's happening here at LCM. Come on, somebody hallelujah in this house. Hallelujah! Y'all want to jump into the biblical text? Yes. We're going to go back to 740 B.C. and visit a prophet named Isaiah. When you find Isaiah, land on the 44th chapter in the 8th verse. Woo! Star Wars. Tonight is going to look a little bit more like a foundation meeting, which means we are intentionally going to feed you more than you can eat. That way you have uh, something to take home and chew on. Amen. Amen. Isaiah 44 and verse 8. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. 
is there any God besides me? No. no. There is no other rock. I know not one. That's an incredible thing for an omniscient God to say, isn't it? <laughs> All other lesser gods are demeaned to the point of being virtually non-existent when compared to our God, yeah. the Most High God of Israel. He's made the nation of Israel and you crazy, mysterious Gentile graftians witnesses of His wondrous power. He announced it in advance so that when it happens, you can say, yeah, I got that divine proclamation. I heard it and it did come to pass. Yeah. In other words, when God says it, that will settle it. it sure does. If only you have the faith and the courage to believe it and do it. What are we going to do, church? Believe, believe it, it and, and do it. Saints, in this church, we meet almost every night in some form or fashion. Some of those meetings are available to the public and some are at the purview of any particular family. See, tonight as we begin, we're going to recap a few d details from Star Power last Sunday. And then we'll move into new material for tonight with highlights from the Monday night's teaching on the Rephaim. Are y'all ready to go with us here? Yeah. We've put a lot of slides for you so you can capture information, so you can be able to see it as we're going through it. We're going to start with some gleanings from Star Power. We started on Sunday in Job 38, and it relates stars to angelic beings called B'nai Ha Elohim, or sons of God, that were present before man at the foundations of the world. Yeah. We then moved to Judges chapter 5, and it has stars participating in warfare on earth in the valley of Megiddo. Yeah. Man, that's, that's some great stuff. We could, we could spend a whole night on just that, but we're going to keep moving. Psalm 82 portrays a heavenly council of Benai Ha Elohim, or spiritual beings, and links them with the starry or celestial realm. Do you guys yeah. remember that? Yep. Do you guys remember that? Yeah. All right. Jeremiah 23, in Jeremiah rebukes the prophets who speak on behalf of God that have never witnessed, heard, seen, or stood in communication with this heavenly council. That's true. Some additional gleanings that we see on the next slide is Job 4 and Job 15 indicate that the heavens as a whole, and specifically the Benai Ha Elohim, are not pure. That even some angelic beings have sinned. Ooh. In a summary of the worldwide failure of humanity in Genesis 6, we noted that participation of the Benai Ha Elohim in mankind's rebellion and failure. In summary of Genesis 10 and 11, we saw that the 70 nations rebelled against God's commands at the Tower of Babel. Yeah. And we noted that the biblical narrative shifts after that point to be the story of only one nation that God would use for the redemption and or condemnation of both the nations and the impure elements of the heavens. Wow. We've just gone through eight of the recapping points. Here come the last four, and we're going to put them online for you so that you can download them, because this is worth going back through. Number nine, these events that we've been discussing allowed for a view of Deuteronomy 32, a kind of biblical worldview that assigns Israel as God's inheritance, and the other 70 nations were given to the rogue elements of the heavenly realms. This view is strengthened by a reading of Deuteronomy 4, which literally says that God assigned or apportioned the heavenly array to those nations. Finally, we came back to Psalm 82, 
which displays God's indictment of these other or lesser spiritual beings for leading the nations into grievous sin and specifically idolatry. Each of the points led us to a supernatural view of Genesis 15 where a promise was given to Abraham that his descendants would not just be as numerous as the stars, but that they would be like the stars of heaven. That they would rise in glorified bodies as rulers over even the celestial realms. Church, this promise was not new. It was a previous promise that had been expounded upon. Let's all turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to look at verse 15. Now, we want you to kind of take note of what's already going on. In those 12 points, that's enough for you to chew on for a long time in your own personal study. Let's just be honest. That summary in about eight minutes there is enough for you to, to really, really continue to get fed on. But that's just the opening for us here. Genesis 3.15. It says this, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. See, as this verse is on the screen, the truth is, is that we tend to view this promise as being given to Adam and Eve, which it was. But more specifically, this verse was spoken to someone. It was spoken to the serpent. And in that speaking to the serpent, it was a declaration of war to that serpent. Yes. This proclamation was understood by the rogue elements of the heavenly realms. Mm. See, many of the main offenders would remain in anonymity. For much of the biblical narrative, but the lackeys, the fall guys, the proxies, they're all all both being recorded and judged right here. Mm. You know, that that reminds me a little bit of a presidential, uh, I don't know, administration. Okay. Where you look and it seems very much like we have two rogue FBI agents. But then we find out the director of the FBI had a problem. Mm. And it looks like that maybe is where it stopped. And then we find out the presidential cabinet had a problem. And that looks like where it stopped. And then you find out the memo landed on a president's desk. Those are the wrong kind of gates, I think, Pastor. Let's take a look at Genesis 6, starting at verse 1, to see how this continues. Get it. Star Wars. When men began to increase in number on the earth... And daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. And they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them, they were heroes of old, men of renown. You know, let's recap Monday and unpack this a little bit as we look at the rebellious manifestation as a response to God's Genesis 3 proclamation. Wow. As we look at this slide, this is Genesis 4. And we read from right to left, the sons of God, or the Benai Elohim, are in contrast to what's on the left side of this, this slide, the daughters of men, or the Benot Ha-Adam. Does everybody see that? Yeah. See, the Benai Ha-Elohim is a genetic designation 
indicating the primal origin of these creatures and that it was celestial. On the left side, the Benot Ha'adam is a genetic designation indicating the primal origin of these women that was terrestrial or normal humankind. These terms of contrast were used to explain the hybrid offspring that resulted from this rebellious manifestation. Wow. Is that interesting? Watch what happens when it goes to Greek. When we're talking about their hybrid offspring, Nephilim in Hebrew, the fallen ones is what any good lexicon will say, comes from a Hebrew verb, nephal, meaning to fall or be cast down, to fall away or desert. But when the Hebrew-speaking people translated this around the year 300, when 70 of the finest scholars wanted the rest of the world to understand, they replaced the word Nephilim with gigantes, giants. Now, that's, that's fascinating in and of itself. But gigantes does not uh, originate from the term giant. It's translated giants. It actually originates from the root gigas, which means earthborn. See, this is why we're saying they're terms of contrast. That which was born in the heavens and that which was born on the earth. Another related word, genages, is the same word used in Greek mythology for the titans, wherever the titans are being described. That gets very interesting because you probably recognize genea, another Greek term for breed, race, or kind. This comes down to us in English as words like genes and genetics. They're from the very same root. Now... When you start to put this together, this view may seem too fantastic to be presumed as valid. But it was the dominant view of the first four centuries of the church fathers. Let's take a look at this next slide. Here are some of the early church fathers that believed exactly as we're teaching you tonight. Philo of Alexandria, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Ambrose, Julian. These are all some of the early church fathers that are... uh, Affirming exactly what we're preaching and teaching to you tonight. You didn't want to talk about lactinaceous? No, sir. I did not. <laughs> His mama didn't love him and didn't feed him right. That, you know? That's for the special lounge back in the back. Oh, so. He was a big baby. Well, this also, as we see in the next slide, you have views of angel in the B.C. era. This comes from the traditional rabbinical literature, the book of Enoch, the testimony of the 12 patriarchs, even Josephus, Flavius, and the Septuagint. You know, to illustrate only one of these ancient testimonies, let us read you the historical record from our main guy, Josephus. The reason we're going to do this is because when we say Book of Enoch, when we say Book of Yashar, you're like, oh, yeah, that's, that's weird internet stuff. But every pastor that you meet <laughs> quotes Josephus when it suits them. Yes. It turns out they don't quote him when it doesn't suit them. Josephus, Antiquity of the Jews, this is in Book 1, And uh, we're beginning in the 73rd verse. For many angels of God accompanied with women. That's a polite way to say it. And begat sons that proved unjust and despisers of all that was good. On account of the confidence they had in their own strength. For the tradition is that these men did what resembled the acts of those whom the Greek call giants. But Noah was very uneasy at what they did. And being displeased at their conduct, persuaded them to change their dispositions and their acts for the better. But seeing that they did not yield to him, 
but were slaves to their own wicked pleasures, he was afraid they would kill him together with his wife and children and those they had married. So he departed out of that land. Now God loved this man for his righteousness. Yet he not only condemned those other men for their wickedness, but was determined to kill the whole race of mankind and to make another race. Somebody say another race. Another race. That should be pure from wickedness and cutting short their lives and making their years not so many as they formerly lived, but 120 only. He turned the dry land into sea. Wow. See, as we move on from Genesis 6 and begin to point to the next worldwide rebellion, let us make one more note about these bastard children, these uh, celestial terrestrial hybrids, these abominations that were aimed at corrupting the divine proclamation that a human being would be born to crush celestial powers. Let's take a look at the next slide. These were also known as not only Nephilim or Nephilim, but they were known as men of renown. We've highlighted it for you there on the left from an interlinear passage. The word there is Shem. And you see the definition there on the right. A masculine noun meaning name or fame. You can interpret this as renown or reputation. For sure, men of renown. But they were seeking their own name. They were not seeking to lift up the name. The Hashem. The name of God. The primary motivation of this attempt was in reaction to the Genesis 3 and the celestial powers. Their own desire to promote a name other than Yahweh God. Remembering that God wiped out, wiped this from the face of the earth and chose Noah to reboot the human race. We'll move on to consider the proclamation given to Noah and then look at the rebellious manifestation that resulted from that. Let's look at Genesis 6, 9. Genesis 6, 9 says, this is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. Say righteous. 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 Blameless among the people of his time. Say blameless. 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 And he walked with God. As we'll see in our next slide, on the left-hand side, we have righteous. Strong's number 6662. This is an adjective meaning just or righteous. And basically in context, they're in accordance, walking in accordance with God's standards. On the right-hand side is blameless. Tamim. This is Strong's number 8549. As you see here, it's an adjective meaning blameless or complete, but in over half of its occurrences, it describes an animal to be sacrificed to the Lord, whether ram, bull, or lamb. See, God would wipe out all mankind and the hybrid problem because of its evil. The Lord would then reboot, start over with a family that was both morally upright and pure in their genetics. Somebody say pure. 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 Pure as far as their moral behavior and pure as far as their actual descent as a human being. Wow. The Lord then restates or restates the Adamic mandate to Noah and his family. We're going to look at it as it's restated, but you remember this from Genesis 1, 26 and 28. It is the Adamic mandate to spread out all over the earth and spread God's image and be fruitful and multiply. The way that it was said to Noah starts here in Genesis 8.15. Then God said to Noah, come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. 
Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground, so that they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number upon it. It's really an extraordinary thought, an incredible thought, to think that every nation on earth can be tied to 14 sons of Japheth and 30 sons of Ham and 26 sons of Shem. Genesis 10 records exactly that for a total of 70 nations. These 70 nations did not obey. Say did not. Did not. The Noahic or the Adamic proclamation. They instead moved eastward towards the plain in Shinar, which is Babylonia. They ignored what God said, and in defiance of what God said and their forefathers handed down to them, they went to one place instead of everywhere on the earth. Would you all like to read about the rebellious manifestation? Yes. The rebellious manifestations are always in response to a proclamation that God makes by divine right. God, defi- God declares something because he's God, and then we're observing the reaction of the nations in rebellion to what God said. Let's pick it up in Genesis chapter 11. Everybody turn with us. Genesis 11, and we're going to pick it up in verse 3. It says this. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city. We built this city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Uh Not a small proposition that they're proposing here so that we can make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Wow. Can you hear it? Doing exactly the opposite of what God is proclaiming to them. But the Lord came down to see the city. And the tower that the men were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Mm. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So what did the Lord do? The Lord scattered them from there all over the earth and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel. Because there, somebody say there, there, the Lord confused the language of the whole world from there. Somebody say there, there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. See, the Tower of Babel event was the second time. It was the second time mankind, the nations had rejected Yahweh's rule as a whole in favor of honoring a name other than the Hashem. Twice mankind has heard God's proclamation and chose a rebellious manifestation in response to it. Mm. See, this event, like the previous one in Noah's day, involved heavenly beings other than the Lord. Let's consider this next slide that we have for you. In this next slide, we're reading from the book of Jashar, chapter 9, verse 31 and 32. And it says, And they built the tower and the city, and they did this thing daily until many days and years were elapsed. And God said to the 70 angels who stood foremost before him, to those who were near to him, saying, Come, let us descend and confuse their tongues, that one man shall not understand the language of his neighbor. And they did so unto them. See, these angels are Benai 
Ha-Elohim are part of the heavenly council that Yahweh finds fault with. They are the powers that the nations are given over to in Deuteronomy 32 and in Deuteronomy 4. They are the supernatural beings that are indicated by Yahweh in Psalm 82. Their impurity would not become immediately obvious until you're able to see what they led the nations into. That being namely idolatry. In other words, you have to move forward some in history to be able to look backwards at this event and see what it caused. Yep. In fact, after the, the Babel event, the biblical narrative shifts dramatically from all mankind to only one man. His family and the nation Amen. that would come from Abram. It's kind of like there's a very clear biblical pattern here. In fact, Abram's family would be transformed into a nation that did not exist among the 70 nations in Genesis chapter 10. One that had not been disinherited or given over to rogue celestial powers. Amen. One that Yahweh himself would lead and call his very own heritage. The birth of this nation would be dependent upon a supernatural birth. Yeah. Come on. And a promised son. Amen. So we don't have time to go through each detail, the heptatic blessing given to Abraham. So we will fast forward to the star power proclamation that's given in Genesis chapter 15. As you're turning to Genesis 15, tell me, is this a common way to set up the biblical story? No. See, it's a whole lot easier to hand you a track and tell you to raise a pinky while every eye is closed. But it's also cowardly and completely devoid of any understanding of what we're here to accomplish. Our goal in teaching you these things is so that you understand what we are headed for and what mankind has actually been tasked to accomplish. Yes. yes. Yeah, do you want to understand that? Yes. Amen. Let's get to Genesis 15.4. Then the word of Yahweh came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside. It's interesting when the word of God takes you somewhere, huh? Yeah. The word of God appears to him in a vision. He can see it. And the word of God takes him outside. I will let you guess at exactly who that is. He took him outside and said, look up at the heavens. Somebody say, look up. Look up. And count the stars. We act as if this verse is about counting the stars, but it's not where it starts. It starts with looking up at what the heavens are like. If indeed you can count them. Then he said, so shall your offspring be. Notice he didn't say, so you'll have as many sons as there are stars. He said, so shall your offspring be. It's only half the truth to say that he would have as many as the stars. That is in the Peshat. But what is implied here is that your offspring will be like the stars of heaven. Yep. You know what's beautiful? As crazy as all of that sounds to you and me, Abram believed the Lord. And he credited it to him as righteousness. Yeah. Now, you think the craziest thing that happened in Abraham's life is he was asked to sacrifice his son and he went to obey. I would say that his crazy faith started way before that. Looking at one of your children and going, like the stars? But wait a minute. He couldn't have kids. 
<laughs> he had to look at what God was going to birth in him and he couldn't even have children and say, not only am I going to have one, he's going to be like the heavens. And he believed the Lord. That's incredible. The Lord's divine proclamation was not only about the number of Abram's offspring, but more importantly, it was about their glorification. They would be like stars. This is the beginning of what we have titled Star Wars. This promise was restated to each of the patriarchs of the nation of Israel. And according to Hebrews eleven nineteen, and I would encourage you to write that down, Abram's faith was in the resurrection to accomplish it. We say he had faith to go offer his son Isaac. He had faith to leave his home. All those things were faith. You have no idea how deep his faith actually was. He believed that his offspring were destined to become like the sons of God in the heavens. And so he was willing to obey God even if it meant killing his son because the promise was based on a son becoming immortal, resurrected, glorified. Uh, By the way, the writer of Hebrews says that plainly and somehow or another it's missed. Like each of the divine proclamations that are made, a rebellious manifestation is anticipated in the very same chapter. All you have to do is slide your finger down to Genesis 15, 13. It says this, Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain. What is that like when God looks at you and says, Know for certain. Just like when Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you. (laughs) There you go. Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. And they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. And afterward, they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. Where's here? In Israel. (laughs) Is in Israel. Your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Wow. See, the Lord laid out a timeline giving both Abram and the starry celestial realm, time to prepare for and react to what Yahweh declared. See, God's not afraid of what the enemy's doing. He's declaring it ahead of time. While you're you're thinking about that, I want you to understand he can accomplish more than one thing at one time. He can both be holding the Amorites for judgment, and he can be allowing his sons to go into Egypt because he he plans to have a great exodus from Egypt. God is able to do more than one thing at one time. And here he's forecasting it. Imagine what it would be like to be a heavenly power in opposition to this. And he's telling you plainly, and you still can't stop him. (laughs) Saints, do you remember the phrase from Genesis 6-4 that says, and also afterwards? That is because the Nephilim, the Nephilim problem, would take center stage in this Star Wars. Now, we're not talking about Anakin Skywalker. We're talking about the Anakim. Let's refresh your memory. Let's refresh your memory on the conquest of the land. As we look at this next slide, it starts with Numbers 13.33, where it says, We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes. Not in the David Carradine kind of way either. no. (laughs) 
and we looked the same to them. In addition to this, Deuteronomy 2, 10 through 11 says, The Emites used to live there, a people strong and numerous, and as tall as the Anakites. Like the Anakites, they too were considered Rephites. Both the Moabites, but the Moabites called them Emites. You see, these hybrid abominations that resulted from the Benai Ha Elohim taking human women were in the land God promised to give Abraham and his descendants, who were destined to be glorified. Ahiman, Shishai, and Talmai are specifically named in a text in Moses' day and Joshua's as being huge obstacles to having entered the land. Deuteronomy records various tribes of Canaanites infected with these hybrids. So first listed is the Emites. Then we have the Anakites, the Zamzumites. And when you look at Deuteronomy chapters 2 and 3, but the most specific and most prolific name is Rephaim or Rephaites, the descendants of Rapha. So if you survey Deuteronomy 2 and 3, you can list the tribes side by side and see how they're compared. And there is a direct link between the Anakim, the Nephilim, and the Rephaim. And the Rephaim becomes the predominant name that um, they're known as throughout biblical history. It's really that straightforward. And honestly, a sixth grader can do it. It's just that we tend to read over these lists of names and we're like... Yeah, the HIVites, the uh, the Kenizzites, the parasites, parasites, and you just move on as fast as you drive through the Montrose. Look, as we continue in our Star Wars, now is a good time to make yourself a note that you want the recording from Monday Night's Foundation. It was a study of First Chronicles 18 through 20, and it will give you more insight into these topics, but we want to refresh a few with different scriptures that will help you understand them. Uh, let's go to Isaiah 26. We're going to be in verse 12. Are you having a good time yet? Lord, you establish peace for us. All that we have accomplished, you have done for us. When you start to think about the complexity of the heavenly realms now, that statement takes on a whole nother meaning. The other nations have lesser spiritual deities that have led them astray and they do it for things like, maybe if I kill my kid, you'll give us better crops. This nation is trusting the Lord and the Lord alone and He's accomplished extraordinary things for them and they're acknowledging everything that's been done, you have done for us. You and not some other God. Oh Lord, our God. Say our God. Our God. This is, uh, you, you have to picture children around the table and the neighbor is over and, and the children are saying, that's, that's our daddy, not yours. See, this nation is the heritage of the Lord and they're calling him our God because they feel a possessive attachment to him and him to them as opposed to the other nations. Oh Lord, our God, other lords. In Hebrew, that's other Adonim. Other masters, O Lord, our God, other lords besides you have ruled over us. But your Hashem alone do we honor. 
Isaiah is contrasting Israel's devotion to the name, character, authority, reputation of the Lord to the other nations and their gods that are not concerned about the name of the Lord, but making a name for themselves. They, those rulers that ruled over them, they are now dead. Muerte, gone, moot in Hebrew. They are now dead. They live no more. Those departed spirits, or in Hebrew, those Rephaim, do not rise. You punished them and brought them to ruin. You wiped out all memory of them. You have enlarged the nation, O Lord. You have enlarged the nation. You have gained glory for yourself. You have extended all the borders of the land. All that Israel ever accomplished had been done through the power of Yahweh and no other lesser Adonai. This is chiefly because Israel honored, carried, and stood for the Hashem uniquely. The other lords, the Rephaim, they are dead and they will never rise. They are dead and will never rise because they have no part in the resurrection. Now, when you put this passage within its biblical context, the passage places these statements within the context of Joshua's conquest, and it goes on to teach something specifically, that the Israelites will resurrect from the dead, that they are destined to be glorified. In other words, the Star Wars would be won by the Israelites. That is the biblical Narrative. I want to summarize something quickly for you in a slide because this, this is a study that you could go on for years. That phrase from Isaiah 26, 14 is right here. The Rephaim, reading from right to left, Rephaim not rise. They've died, but they cannot rise from the dead in the way that an Israelite will. You can study this through the passages on the right-hand side. Job 26.5 speaks of the Rephaim as dead things that are not trapped in something like a prison in Sheol, but they are among dead things. Psalm 88.10, the Rephaim will not rise. But where it got really interesting and very practically applicable, the Rephaim... A pathway towards them is when you commit sexual immorality. Proverbs 2.18 literally teaches that going to an adulteress will put you in the congregation of the Rephaim. Not that you'll die, but that you will be among demon spirits while you do this thing. Proverbs 9.18 literally implies the same thing. Isaiah 14, everybody thinks describes the fall of Satan and they're wrong. And it's okay. You have the right to be wrong if you want to. It's actually about the ruler of Babylon and the spirits of the Rephaim are astir because he has fallen and he's become as weak as they are. Except in the passage, ruler is plural. They are excited that these other rulers that perhaps tricked them into doing what they did are now receiving the same kind of treatment that they got. You've never seen a kid spanked and he's happy when his brother gets spanked too, have you? Yeah. I've seen that. By the time you read Rephaim in 26.19, Isaiah 26.19, 
There is such a distinction between what is happening with Israel and what's happening with the Rephaim that the passage is clearly telling you Israelites will rise from the dead, but the earth is going to miscarry, expel, throw out. The actual Hebrew word is nephal, like nephilim. It will expel the Rephaim. That's a crazy thought, isn't it? Yes. The book of Enoch speaks about these events. Now, I know when you hear Enoch and Yashar, you think, wait, those are apocryphal. Actually, they're pseudographia. In other words, it's not that the writing itself is false. It's that the author is unknown. The author cannot be attested to in the same way as the other works can be. But I want to clue you in on something. We're quoting them with the same veracity that you would quote a commentary. Because even if they are... uh, falsely attributed to Enoch or falsely attributed to Yashar in the 2nd century uh, BC, they are telling you what the Jewish people are talking about in the 200 years approaching Jesus. In other words, it's cluing you into the worldview and what they thought about Nephilim, what they thought about Genesis 6, what they thought about the world that they lived in. Church, in each one of these slides, if you're not noticing, we've actually put for you where we found this information. There, it's documented there where we are finding this information. So as you download these offline, you can go back and see these as well. Look at the book of Enoch in chapter 15. It says this, And now the giants who are produced from the spirits and flesh shall be called evil spirits upon the earth, and on the earth shall be their dwelling. Evil spirits have proceeded from their bodies because they are born from men and from the holy watchers is their beginning and primal origin. They shall be evil spirits on the earth and evil spirits shall they be called. As for the spirits of heaven, in heaven shall be their dwelling. But as for the spirits of the earth, which were born under upon the earth, on the earth shall be their dwelling. And the spirits of the giants afflict, oppress, destroy, attack, do battle and work destruction on the earth and cause trouble. They take no food, but nevertheless, they're hangry. They're hungry and thirsty and they cause offenses. Wow. And these spirits shall rise up against the children of men and against the women because they have proceeded from them. See, saints, so that you don't get lost in these details. We're summarizing hours upon hours of teachings for you of previous teachings just in the last few days. We want you to look at this next slide for a moment, and we're going to summarize that Genesis chapter 6 gives us three categories, three races, three groupings of beings, and we want to show those to you now. The three categories in Genesis 6 is that one, we have the daughters of men. That is the Benot Ha'adam. Secondly, the sons of God, the Benai Ha'elohim. And thirdly, the Nephilim, or the hybrid offspring. See, normal human offspring died in the flood and then faces standard biblical judgment, right? Many of the sons of God that defected were placed into Tartarus, although it was, not, it was clearly not all the sons of God. There were still groups that were loyal and still later defections. The Nephilim and Rephaim are disembodied demonic spirits, whether they died in the flood or during Moses' conquest, Joshua's conquest, or during time of David's ultimate victory. Yeah, it was a problem that persisted, and there were many stages of their eradication. I want to look at Deuteronomy 32 again. And 
I would love to teach on the entire chapter, but there's so much new material that we want to get to. We're simply refreshing your memory. When you look at that first verse, it clearly addresses the inhabitants of the heavens and the earth. Normal Hebrew parallelism, poetic style of Hebrew writing, would have the second sentence mirror the first and say essentially the same things with different words. This doesn't. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. Let the earth hear the words of my mouth. Okay? We're addressing two different groups of people with the same words from the same mouth. That's the intention of Moses speaking here. Verses 8 and 9. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when He divided mankind, He fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion, His spoil of war, is His people, Jacob, His allotted heritage. Verses 8 and 9 should be understood as a reference to the worldwide rebellion at the Tower of Babel. What is becoming clear from studying these passages is that Yahweh gave the disobedient nations over to their desires and He placed them under the dominion of other spiritual beings. This is exactly the line of of thought that Paul has in Romans 1 where people are given over to their own sensuality to receive in themselves the penalty for their perversion. Now, at the same time that Yahweh did this, He disinherited them, and He raised up Israel as His own heritage, His portion or spoils of war. To understand the implications of this particular biblical worldview, we should consider that Yahweh expressed special anger with his own people when they worshiped these lesser deities. Acts 14 and Acts 17 says he let the nations go their own way, but he did not let Israel go their own way. (laughs) He sent them prophets, (laughs) corrections, all kinds. You won't read about a prophet sent to North America because it wasn't happening. But prophets were going to Israel. God did not like it when Israel resorted to worshiping a lesser spiritual being like the nations around them. If if you really want to understand that process, go back through Deuteronomy 4. For now, I want to look at the law, the prophets, and the writings where Israel is flirting with these lesser deities and how God speaks to them because it makes it crystal clear. Are you ready for crystal clarity? Yes. Let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 32 and let's look at verse 17. Right after where pastor just read Deuteronomy 32, 17, it says this, they sacrificed to demons, which are not gods, gods. They had not known gods that recently appeared. God, your father's not fear. Very recently appeared. Very recently. <laughs> like I just killed one the other day, and now... <laughs> Church, are you starting to see? Do you see the link between the gods of the nation and these demonic spirits? In our next slide is Isaiah 65.3 in the Septuagint. And it reads, This people, the one provoking me, before me is always. They sacrifice in the gardens... And they burn incense upon the bricks to the demons, which are not. Again, here in the prophets, do you see the link between the gods of the nations 
and the demon spirits. Yeah, if you have a translation that doesn't say that, I want you to understand that in the same way that sometimes the Bible uses a word for excrement and the translators will say something like garbage, it's polite, but it's not more accurate. Sometimes the Bible will use a word like married when the literal rendering says went into. But that strikes translators as too graphic for their audience. I would much rather just be biblically honest than have a cleaned up version. I'd like to look at the writings now. We're going to look at the Eric Stevens version, (laughs) otherwise known as the ESV. Uh, This is Psalm 106, verse 37. I'm kidding. I just said that for Pastor Massey. I actually am a big fan of the 1984 NIV. Not because it's better. It's just familiar to me. (laughs) That's right. So we know the best. I'd like to be able to find the verses I'm looking for. Star Wars, verse 37. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood. The blood of their sons and daughters whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. Can you imagine what Yahweh thought when those who he calls out of Egypt, I've called my son. He's talking about his offspring. Took their offspring to lesser deities and sacrificed their own children to them. What a slap in the face. Do you see the link between the gods of the nations and demon spirits? When you're thinking of the heavenly hierarchy, when you're thinking of our topic, Star Wars, or principalities in general, I want to give you a few hints. The council of 70 sons of God, they're like four-star generals. And the reason that I say that is all over the Bible, there's 10,000 times 10,000 angels, but they come in many different rankings. These 70 seem to be among the highest rankings. And some are loyal, and some are not. The powers under them are also called Benai Ha Elohim, or sons of God, because they're God's creation. But they are lesser in rank than those 70. Some are imprisoned. We put that on a slide for you, though we didn't draw attention to it. 1 Peter 3, 2 Peter, uh, and then Jude. They're imprisoned, but some are not imprisoned. The hybrid offspring they produced are demons. And they are roaming freely and causing havoc on the planet. Church, all of this makes Joshua's conquest so much more interesting. Let's take a look at this next slide. We're summarizing King Og. Everybody say Og. Og. Of Bashan. Say Bashan. Bashan. See, here we see in Joshua chapter 12 and verses 4 and 5, we learn that Og of Bashan is the last of the Rephaites. See, Joshua broke the power of the Rephaim and destroyed their bodies. Og was the last of the earthly kings of these hybrids. That's what Joshua 12 teaches us. It's interesting to note, he ruled over Mount Hermon. Everybody say Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon. We're going to come back to that in just a few minutes. In Deuteronomy chapter 3, we learn that Og of Bashan ruled over 60 cities. Wow. We learn also in this passage that his bed was 13 feet long and 6 feet wide. Next time you get a king-size bed, you have to be more clear. Is it a a Rephaim king-size bed or just a king-size bed? That's even bigger than the Californian king, right? (laughs) 
Although the same moral quality. Exactly. <laughs> is it still a oh, California king or are they now California queens? Uh, I think uh. it's all the same. Um, hey, I just came from the left coast. You can boo all you want, but yes. it's true. They've transcended. <laughs> By Joshua 10 at verse 22, we find out that there's only three cities or three areas that Joshua didn't remove the Rephaim from. That was Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod. See, these were the only three places where the hybrids uh, were left when Joshua was finished with his work. You know, pastor just listed the three areas that Joshua didn't remove the Rephaim. It was Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod. And our next slide comes from 1 Samuel 17, 40. And what we have here is a listing, starting with Goliath, but also his four brothers that came from Gath. And what began with Joshua, as you see, David started to finish that same work. And it wasn't just David, but it was also and all of his mighty men that finished that work, destroying these Rephaim that came from the region of Gath. Look, we, uh, we have a lot to get to, but that slide is, is, is so good yeah. that it's worth saying. When David was a young man, he picked up the stones to kill them all. Yeah, he did. You ever been young and full of confidence? <laughs> yes. The next group, Ishbi Benab. Abishai had to save David's life. Yeah. The further you go in this race, the more you will find out you need your brothers. Amen. Oh, Amen. Good. And what David couldn't accomplish by himself, as great as he was, David and four of his friends, they got it done. Amen. Yeah, man. This is what LCM is actually all about yeah. right here. Amen. Look, Amen. as we move to the Newer Testament, where did Og rule over? Bashan. Yeah, it, it's funny. What do you have to think to name your kid? <clears throat> what shall his name be? Og. 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 <laughs> I don't know. I picture his mama as a wildebeest. But in any case, he might have just been ugly. He was very ugly. As we move into the Newer Testament, I want you to keep in mind that he ruled over Hermon. That's an important word. Let's, let's look at uh, the book of Enoch, chapter 6. And it came to pass, when the children of men had multiplied in those days were born unto them beautiful and comely daughters. And the angels, the children of heaven, saw and lusted after them, and said to one another, Come, let us choose, choose us wives from among the children of men, and beget us children. Then Simjaza, who was their leader, said unto them, I fear ye will not indeed agree to do this deed, and I alone shall have to pay the penalty of a great sin. And they all answered him and said, Let us all swear an oath and all bind ourselves by mutual precautions not to abandon this plan, but to do this thing. Then swear they all together and bound themselves by mutual precautions upon it. And they were in all 200. How many defectors are we talking about? 200 who descended in the days of Jared on the summit of Mount, Mount Hermon. Hermon. Wow. And they called it Mount Hermon because they had sworn and bound themselves by mutual imprecautions upon it. Hermon got its name 
because of an evil devotion to corrupt the human race. The goal was that Messiah would not be born. Hermon, biblically, is the site of Baal worship. In fact, it shows up in the Bible several times as Baal Hermon. Throughout the biblical narrative, Pastor Wade's going to show you how the Hitchcock Bible Name Dictionary defines it. Take a look at this next slide. Hermon. Anathema. Not a word that we use all the time, so it helped us out even further. It's a place that is devoted to destruction. See, Mount Hermon is linguistically related to the peoples that were devoted to destruction in the Israelite campaigns into the Promised Land. This is essential in understanding the Older Testament as a whole. God wanted to wipe out even the memory of the bastard son spirits trying to prevent Messiah from appearing. See, in fact, the text repeatedly says Yahweh devoted these towns, these peoples, these items to destruction. The word there in the Hebrew is cherem. It is, it is a derivative. It is closely related to the word hermon. Mount Hermon was the landing spot for the first defection of the Benai Ha Elohim. And it was a part of Og's kingdom, who was the last of the kings of the Rephaim. And they, they, they were still embodied. Now, we're turning towards Matthew 16. But at this point in the message, we should explain our homiletic. Yeah. Our homiletic is Star Wars because of the nature of the battle between Abraham's offspring and the angelic offspring that sought to prevent their glorification. But there was another reason. Yeah. I'm sure most of you recognize that George Lucas borrowed biblical names and themes in order to build the characters and settings in the Star Wars saga. Names like Anakin, like Endor. As in Witch of Endor. Right. And many, many others. So we thought that we would return the favor to Mr. Lucas. Yeah. (laughs) Episode one, The Phantom Menace. This is Genesis 3 through 6. This is where we literally got our first disembodied spirits. Episode 2, Attack of the Clones. This is where we are dealing with not human offspring between Noah and David. Episode 3, Revenge of the Sith. This is Satan working behind the scenes, but you never get to see him. He's just like a hologram in the distance somewhere. Episode 4, New Hope. This is the birth of Jesus Christ. Episode 5, The Empire Strikes Back. This is the crucifixion. Episode 6, Return of the Jedi. This is the second coming that we're all waiting for. Now we put question marks next to the last three episodes. There's a reason for that. Force Awakens? No, we never lost him. His name is the Holy Spirit and he's not a force. He's the personage. Last Jedi... We're not cessationist. No, no. And, and we still disciple. There can't be a last Jedi. DCD. Rise of Skywalker. Are you kidding me? Our hero has already risen and is definitely not a woman. <laughs> See, tonight, in addition to understanding biblical principles, you're also gaining insight into the reasons that these last three episodes... We're so terrible. <laughs> all right, all right, all yep, right, all right. Yep, yep. 
All you nerds, calm down. See, now that we've had our fun, which we have, it is time for us to get immensely serious for a moment. Amen. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 16, and we're going to begin in verse 13. It says this. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. Where's that? Church, Hmm. that is on Mount Hermon. Yeah, it is. Jesus came to this region of Caesarea Philippi. He asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others still say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. Amen. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Come on. Now see, you got to understand what's going on here, church. Jesus intentionally took his Talmudim to a very specific place for Peter to get a special revelation. Yeah. Yeah. He didn't do this by accident. He had a purpose in this. He took them to the gates of hell on Mount Hermon for many reasons. Let me help you to understand just a few of them. See, it was there on Mount Hermon that Augustus had a temple and claimed to be the son of God right there on Mount Hermon where they were standing. Pan had a temple there and sacrificed children in a cave right here where Jesus is standing on Mount Hermon. Og, the last king of the Rephaim, he ruled there in Mount Hermon. This was the original site of the angelic defection that we've talked to you so much about tonight. That those who participated in the first defection were imprisoned in a gloomy dungeon in Hades called Tartarus. See, Jesus is the only unique son of the living God. Amen! The Christ or Messiah of Israel on the human race and the human genome. That's important. That is. Pure and righteous. Blameless. Nothing that comes from the gates of Hades. Whether angelic defections, demonic dictators, august impersonations, pan's perversions, or even the Rephaim will prevail against the king and the kingdom that Jesus was establishing. Yes. Church, we're on the offensive. See, these are broken and there are people who are on the defensive. This rebellious, the rebellious manifestations in response to God's divine proclamations all had associations with this spot that Jesus is speaking to his Talmudim at. Wow. But they would never prevail against Yahweh or his sons in this Star Wars. See, Israel and the mysterious Gentile Graftians will rise above the angelic realm and rule the world that is to come. Amen. It is, it is not to the angels that he has subjected the world to come. Hebrews 2 verse 5 tells us that plainly. Yeah. See, right now we appear a little lower than the heavenly beings, but we're called to be above them. Psalms 8 teaches us that very clearly. It's difficult to see this now. But we see Jesus risen above them now as a glorified man. And Hebrew 2 speaks to that entirely. Listen, he just said an awful lot. And that really is worth making sure you understand. You should read Hebrews 2. You should read Psalm 8. And you need to do it in more than one version. Because neither one are about being lower than God. That's a given. It's about being made lower than the sons of God. 
You look weaker, but you are higher in calling. And almost every ancient manuscript testifies to that. You have to go 900 years after Christ to get something different in Psalm 8. 900 years later, the Masoretic text did that differently. But the Septuagint and the Dead Sea Scrolls do not. That's an important point. Wow. That's a good word of uh, lower than the sons of God, but higher in calling. Higher. Higher in calling. Yeah. You know, in the original text of the Gospel of Matthew, there were no chapter breaks. In fact, Caesarea is, on, is in the foothills of Mount Hermon. Yeah. In the same passage, Jesus takes the Talmudim further up the mountain. He didn't just stop at Caesarea Philippi. So pretend that when you're reading Matthew 16, you don't have a break between 16 and 17. If you've already ascended to a mountain that is Caesarea Philippi, and then you ascend high on a mountain, why would you assume that's in a different place? Not at all. In fact, Matthew 17, verse 1 is where we'll start and pick up. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. See, it's here Jesus revealed himself in his true nature. With the glory he had before time began. You should think John 17 when you hear that. Yeah. He is the star of God. Meaning the firstborn among many brothers who would share his nature. That he is the victory in the Star Wars. And here's the promise. That we shall be like him. Amen. Somebody say amen. Amen. Hey, can we put Luke 9.31 on the screen? It's a parallel passage, and I I want you to hear it. This is describing exactly the same event. They spoke about his departure. Departure. That word is exodus. They spoke about his exodus, which he was about to bring to fulfillment in Jerusalem. Luke 9.31 is the same event, and it makes it clear that Jesus is speaking while he appears to be glorified with Moshe, the representative of the Torah of God. And he is speaking with Elijah, the representative of the prophets. And they're speaking about one thing, an upcoming exodus. Because Bible prophecy is a pattern that repeats itself. And each time you go through it, it gets a little clearer in detail. So let's talk about their upcoming exodus. And let's compare it to the exodus that's already happened. Are you ready for that? Yeah. In the first exodus, the gods of Egypt were judged. And Israel was delivered. Exodus 12.12 says that. Well, in the second exodus, the one that Jesus has initiated, in the second exodus, the gods of this world will will be judged and Israel will be delivered. See, the first is the prototype and the second is the fulfillment. That's what Jesus is standing, appearing to be glorified. Abraham's descendant, looking like the stars of heaven, is talking about. In the first exodus, A remnant of the nations joined with Israel and were saved. If you ever dig deeply into Exodus 12, 38, you'll find out it's not only Israelis that came out of Egypt. A multitude of nations were there. 
Well, that's important because in the second exodus, the one that Jesus Christ initiates, a remnant of the nations would join with Israel and would be saved. Why are they talking about this while he's transfigured? Because they're showing the first fulfillment of what God promised to Abraham. Your offspring will be like the stars of the heavens. In the same way that the nation was birthed, he was talking about bringing the nation into that heavenly habitation. Not not going somewhere else, being made like the heavens. Look, even as Joshua broke the power of the Rephaim, so Jesus would deal with their demonic spirits. See, Joshua killed their bodies, but there was something that Joshua couldn't deal with. Jesus would. The demonic spirits, Jesus would reclaim the world from them and reclaim the world for the human race, for mankind. He would demonstrate mankind's true calling. Yeah. Come on, church. This has incredible implications for each of us. It does. Now, y'all got to stay with us. We've got some really good stuff that we have yet to come. These are the most incredible passages that we can read for you as we're laying this groundwork it is so that you understand a bigger perspective a bigger picture you're not just getting saved just to because you raised your hand there is a purpose there is a call there is something much larger than what you are envisioning with your natural eyes and we're trying to open that up to you tonight turn with us to matthew chapter 4 to see how jesus is doing this matthew 4 and verse 17 It says this, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. See, just like Joshua, Jesus was bringing God's kingdom into this region. It goes on to say this in verse 18, as Jesus was walking beside the sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Mm. Simon called Peter and his brother, Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once, they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. See, what's happening is immediately Jesus is beginning to preach, and then he turns and he starts to find disciples, those who would come with him. Like Joshua, Jesus had Israelites following his lead. Amen. He was teaching them, and he was putting their feet on the necks of the enemy. Come on. Think about what Joshua did in Joshua 10 that he had all the able-bodied men in the military come put their boot on the neck of the enemy. You know what? how potent that can be, especially in our day and time. Look at verse 23. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria. Mm. Where is that? Syria is Bashan. All over the area of Bashan, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Church like Joshua, Jesus demonstrated the victory that he expected other Israelites to live in and to continue to walk in. 
Jesus was restoring mankind's role to correctly witness the image of God all over the earth, and he was starting there in Israel. Why was it important for Jesus to cast out demons? Why was that important? He is showing that mankind, not not God, that's without question, that mankind was given authority over spiritual powers. He was doing this as a descendant of Abraham. He's not resurrected from the dead yet. He's not ascended to the throne yet. He's not proven deity yet. He is doing it as an anointed man showing you that that is your calling. He's the firstborn among many brothers. Somebody say, this is my calling. This is my calling. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. We'll start in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Listen, do not divorce that from everything that he's about to say. It's the preface to everything he's about to say. You can't understand what he's about to say if you associate any one of the titles we're about to give with anything to do with flesh and blood. That's the whole point. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. See, church, like that. Jesus has killed giants, and now he expects his men to take care of the remaining stragglers. We got work to do in the heavenly realms. Are there any men loyal to the Davidic son? Look what Colossians 2.9 promises you. Colossians 2.9. For in Christ, all the fullness. Somebody say fullness. Fullness. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. Jesus is a glorified man in whom all the fullness of the deity lives. Mm. You have been given fullness in him and are over all other spiritual forces. Listen. You have to do your job. We're at war. We're in star wars. Fighting for the proclamation of God and our own divine destiny. You are called to rise above the spiritual powers. See, church, the climactic end of the biblical narrative presents most in humanity rejecting Yahweh's plan as they've done every other time before. See, as in the other times, they are aided by lesser gods or the sons of lesser gods. Turn with us to Revelation 9, and we're going to look at verse 20. Revelation 9, 20, it says this. The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. (laughs) They're seeing unparalleled destruction. Plagues that are coming there. And they still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons. 
and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk. See, now, when you is... hear that verse, the idols of stone and wood cannot see, hear, or walk. I assure you the demons that they're worshiping can see, can speak, and can do things. You have to make the distinction between the figurine and the thing the figurine represents. Mankind did not turn away from the other spiritual powers and towards Yahweh even when plagues come on mankind. Just like Pharaoh's heart was hardened in the first exodus. And he would not turn away from relying on his gods to the God of Israel. See church, only a small remnant of Egyptians were saved with Israel. And only a small remnant of the nations will be delivered with Israel in the new exodus that is to come. Turn with us to Revelation 16, and we're going to look at verse 14. Verse 14 says this. They are spirits of demons. Get this. Performing miraculous signs. And they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for battle on the great day of God Almighty. See, these spiritual beings have been an aid, if not the cause, in all previous rebellions. And they continue to be right up until the day of God Almighty. We must be with Him as His chosen, His called, and His faithful followers, like Revelation 17, 14 says. Amen. Church, you are destined to be God's ruling agency. That is his design for your function. That his sons that were loyal in displacing spiritual beings that were not loyal. This is the end of Star Wars. Meaning that the Death Star is destroyed. And the Morning Star wins it all. We're going to be in Revelation 18. And I I just, I want to emphasize something to you. It would be much simpler to teach you to sit, to tithe, and to believe six points that nobody anywhere would argue with because it doesn't show up in their daily life anywhere. In fact, we could have a book club and a knitting club in the church. We could sit around and make stained glass windows if that's what we wanted to do. And most of the so-called Christian world is content to do that. But it won't do anything to actually advance God's kingdom. It won't do anything to help you actually achieve the call to which God has, has given you as a member of the human race. Yeah. We are called to rule and reign the creation. Yeah. You will never convince me that people that cannot rule and reign over themselves will rule and reign with Jesus because they handed in a decision card. Wow. You'll never convince me of that. Okay? Uh, you, you talk about ballot harvesting and voter fraud. There's never been a worse example of that than evangelistic campaigns where we claim a million people got saved, but next month they, they're, they're not living radically transformed lives and moving towards a destiny. The church has to begin again at teaching the actual destiny of Christians so that you can rise to that calling. Do you know that the book of Revelation contains twice a blessing for both 
reading it and taking it to heart, you don't find that same blessing stated in the book of Matthew or the book of Mark or the book of Luke or the book of John. The only book in the entire Bible that says about itself twice and it says it in the first chapter and the last chapter. Do you know why? Eschatology is not unimportant. It informs how you live because it's the direction you believe you're headed. That's good. We're not trying to be sensational for the point of being sensational. We actually believe that in this room, God's sons and daughters will become warriors and we will take back this planet for Him. We believe that. Let's do Revelation 18 and hear instruction from the book of Revelation. Beginning in verse 2. With a mighty voice He shouted, Fallen! Fallen is Babylon the Great! She has become a home for demons and a haunt for every evil spirit a haunt for every unclean and detestable bird for all the nations say all 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 the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries the kings of the earth have committed adultery with her and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries then i heard another voice from heaven say Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her... What's that word? Almost like we have an exodus happening, huh? For her sins are piled up to heaven. In fact, a few of them were encouraged by the heavenlies. And God has remembered her crimes. Give back to her as she has given. Pay her back double for what she has done. Mix her a double portion from her own cup. Babylon was the home of many grievous sins against Yahweh. Starting at the Tower of Babel, which was in the plain of Shinar or Babylonia, and continuing through the biblical narrative all the way to Revelation 18. But the gods of Babylon and the bastard offspring lose to the loyal sons of God and the Star Wars saga. I have one more thing to point to about this. We keep using a word that you don't hear in church a great deal. And that's a shame. I think we should reclaim vocabulary and not surrender it to hell. Do you know how the first century writers referred to demon spirits? They called them bastard spirits. In Jewish literature, that's what they're called. The same way you learned a few weeks ago that a tare planted in a field was referred to as bastard wheat. They had no problem recognizing that a person's legitimacy, a spiritual power's legitimacy, had to do with loyalty to the only one and true Father. And that if that is not your highest ideal, your highest priority, then you are illegitimate. And this is behind Jesus looking at somebody going, your father is the devil. It's the same train of thought. Your lives, according to Ephesians 3.10, the church, the actual sons of the living God, it is to display something. The manifold wisdom of God. That's, and we're supposed to be displaying it to the, the rulers and authorities Come in on. the heavenly realms. Yeah, this is not yeah. about witnessing and handing out tracts on the street corner as great as that is. It's about what your life is displaying in loyalty to your father because there are disloyal 
spiritual beings that are watching your every move. And you were created weaker than them, but you are called higher than them. And that in and of itself speaks a message. It's like when the little guy prevails over the larger guy. Which is why we love the story of David and Goliath. You just had absolutely no idea the extent to which the little guy was prevailing over the big guy. It had so much less to do with stature and everything to do with a demonically bred being facing an actual human being that because he trusted God was his son and he overcame the one that was a bastard son because he would not trust. Come on, on, church. Isn't that encouraging to understand the bigger context? That we are lesser, but we've been empowered by the very Spirit of God. And we will overcome. We will be risen above them. Let's look at Revelation 22, 16. You're just right there, a few pages away. Revelation 22, 16. It says this. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and... Somebody say, and... And... The bright morning star. See, Jesus is the answer to the death stars. He is the bright morning star. Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers. And we will become what He is. Come on, church. That has everything to do with us tonight. We will become what He is. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15, 49. Let me read this to you. And it will declare what you will be. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. That promise is you will be glorified just as he is. Listen, we cannot only talk about this one service a year that we've mistakenly called an Easter service. I don't even want to get into the etymology of that word. It is tragically off course for this not to be our topic All of the time, it's the calling of mankind. Quite simply, you will be glorified as He is. Look at Revelation 3, 21. To Him who raises a pinky during an evangelistic crusade. To Him who was born in a Christian family. To Him who cannot, uh uh-huh, during a doctrinal statement. To Him who overcomes. I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. You don't just get to look like him. You participate with him in the rulership over the creation. You sit with him on his throne. Man, church, if you understood that, you would never be tempted to so lower yourself as to be manipulated By the bastard sons of fallen entities. Listen, you will never catch somebody who knows they're going to become president out being manipulated by a city councilman. When you know the height to which you're called, some things are just beneath you. You won't even consider it. That's a civilian affair. I'm headed higher. Amen. Let's look at Revelation 2.26 to further this idea. It says, To him who overcomes and does my will to the end. 
I will give authority over the nations. Come on now. A higher calling has to be understood here in this house. You are called to be over nations. You are called to stand with him, to be seated with him, to be glorified like him. That is what you, church, that is what we are called to be. We will have authority over the nations. That is why we must overcome now and do his will all the way until the end. Can somebody say amen? Amen. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3. Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? So we have this higher calling to walk in the authority, to walk in the confidence that the King of Kings has bestowed upon us, that we walk with that authority in our hand, that we will judge even the angels in the heavenly realms. And we must walk around with confidence in it. I want you to understand that the Corinthian church was, was not predominantly a Jewish church. I mean, Sosthenes and other synagogue rulers were a part of it, and there was a strong messianic contention. But we're writing to a Gentile populace. Come on. And do you know what he expected them to know as brand new believers? You will judge the heavenly powers. Wow. And yet we, to us, this is advanced. That is a pathetic statement about the state of the average church around us. You can be in church 30 years and not hear one original concept. Mm. And you don't because there is an agreement. We're going to talk about these 14 points in a new and exciting way every week. And we will never deviate from them because we simply don't want to rock the boat. Friends, that's like making a treaty with the enemy that you will never advance. And it's why discipleship is not setting the world on fire. The men who understood this message became radically revolutionary. They turned the world upside down. And I believe we can do it again. Amen. Amen. Let's look at Revelation 3, 5. He who overcomes. It's amazing. There are seven promises only for he who overcomes. I want you to understand there's a homiletic in these verses. He who has an ear, let him hear. If you've only got one ear... You qualify, but if you do not overcome, you cannot qualify. Man, I hope you will give us one of your ears here. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. This plainly says that you will be acknowledged before the Father And the angelic realm. Because you overcame. And many of them did not. Revelation (laughs) 2.11. Speaking of what Eric was just talking about. He who has an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. Mm. See, the lake of fire has no effect on you. There was not even a small worry that they would have. Why? Because when you overcome, the lake of fire will not hurt you at all, even though that's where many of these angelic beings will end up. If you honestly survey Matthew 25, you will find out out of Jesus' own mouth that lake of fire was created for the devil and his angels. Man was a bonus 
Man was never supposed to be there. Man was always supposed to be God's ruling agency on the earth. It was only when man followed the spiritually defective, impure, benai Elohim, that man can even end up there. God always intended you to overcome. But He didn't intend anyone to sit on their salvation in greasy grace and lay claim to Disneyland in the sky because they could nod uh uh-huh at a few doctrinal points. God is a warrior. And He is calling you to His side in warfare. Revelation 2.7 says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. When you tell me that very thing that was barred by a flaming sword that no man could enter and partake of again is now open for those who have spent every drop of their life to follow the King of Kings and overcome through his name and through his blood. It gives you the right to forever Eat of this tree of life, this eternal life at a constant source. I get that people might not like it when I mock your normal Christian phrases. But the thing is, is I was lost in the Christian church for much of my life. And I could quote the Roman road to salvation and win the Bible award. So I don't care much for your Christian phrases. All you need to do is believe on Jesus. What a pathetic lowering of the standard of God. If you actually believed on Jesus, you would never need to be told that. And your life would evidence it because you would have been at war the moment you were born again. And the gates of hell will never overcome the actual church of Jesus Christ. All you need to do is believe on Jesus. Give me the minimum. You can't actually be safe like that. You have been sold a bill of goods. Revelation 21.7 He who overcomes, not he who believes, not he who agrees, not he who attended, he who ate a cracker, not he who tithed well, not he who held a church position. If you think your church position makes you secure, understand what we've been telling you all night is not even the angel's celestial position was secure. Come on. That's good. He who overcomes will inherit All this. Everything described prior to Revelation 21. The the bride of Christ. The new Jerusalem. The world that is being made into God's image. The new heaven and the new earth. He who overcomes will inherit all of this. And you've been told all your life that the goal of Christianity is to die and go to heaven. No, it's to live as you're dying now. And be raised like a star of the heavens on the earth and inherit it. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Not us get the hell out of here. Your kingdom come. Not us escape. John 17, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. When did the church get its tail between its legs? Maybe when we started letting pansy pastors lead us. Because they had an academic degree rather than an authentic experience with Jesus Christ. He who overcomes will inherit all this. And I will be his God. 
And he will be my son. What is the mark of a son of God? He overcomes. That's what we're exhorting you to. You are called to overcome. Not hide like a little ferret in a hole from the devil and his minions. You're to be on the offensive. You're a son of God. Take it to the enemy and hit him until he doesn't rise. Drive him out of your house. Church, do you hear how ridiculous it is for us to walk around with offense? With our sensibilities ever being in question? See, we are sons and daughters of God. We must rise and be like them. Look at 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. Our God is a God of war. He is a warrior and we must reflect Him. I'm going to say it again because you need to hear it. If you are constantly walking around in offense, Oh, pastor, I'm not offended for me. I'm just offended for someone else. Those are demonic thoughts that are troubling you that are washing over you that's not what sons of god do pastor i'm not offended uh, for me i'm offended for someone else my friend the Rephaim. i'm hanging out in their congregation i'm talking to them they're they're meddling in my heart i'm actually offended for my friend the Rephaim. oh you can't see him it's okay i am conversing with him flirty maybe church don't lose this as we get ready to close tonight Don't you lose what we're saying to you. We've given you an overwhelming amount of information that you can take and keep on studying. You need to. You need to come back and listen to this again. But don't let your offenses, wives. Don't let your offenses, husbands. Don't let these things keep you from becoming what you are destined to be. Show that you are a son of God. Show that you will shine like the stars in the heavens. Look at what 1 John 3 says. Dear friends, now... We are children of God. And what we will be has not been yet been made known. But we know. Somebody say, I know it. But I know it. That when He appears, we shall be like Him. Yes. For we shall see Him as He is. Church, it is your destiny. It is your call. It is your very makeup that you will be like Jesus. Amen. That takes you rising above the elementary thoughts that you've had for so long. Even in this church, even if you've been here for a while, don't attribute more than what you are actually walking in. God is calling us higher. He's saying, you've got to come up and you've got to be like me. Amen. Not just in what you're saying, not just in what you're feeling, but in what you are, being victorious, being an overcomer. Amen. See, we serve a God who likes to make divine proclamations as an invitation for the rebellious to manifest themselves. Mm. It's like him goading the other powers in attempting to stop him. He's saying, I'm going to make this group of people, those who will overcome and do my will to the end, I will make them like me. Now bring your best. Come on, demonic whores. I'm saying these people, I'm calling them, do your best. Yeah. Because I can make them just like me. Yeah. See, he knows they can't stop us. Look at how Paul describes this, the end, of, the end game of God. This has nothing to do with Thanos. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 24. Say Star Wars whenever you're there. Verse 24. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. 
For he must reign until he has put all his enemies, where? Under his feet. While you're talking about under his feet, this is typical Christian misdirection. Oh, well, Jesus is going to do it all. Then why does Romans 16, 21 say the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet? Yeah. You don't understand that when we say Christ, we're talking about Jesus as the head and the anointed body of Messiah. And that is supposed to include you. Amen. Verse 26. The last enemy to be destroyed is for he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. You see, Jesus is in substance God. And he is a glorified man. He and his men will destroy all opposition. And the human but glorified sons of God will reign so that the kingdom of God is perfectly established from the heavens above all the way to the earth below. When we think of Jesus, we just quickly, tritely jump right to the answer, Jesus is God. I don't contest that at all. I I would give my life for that at any moment, any hour of the day, anywhere in the world. You have to understand, he called himself son of man for a reason. You have to understand when people saw him, what they saw was a human being. And the point of Corinthians 15 is that God used a human being, someone born of a woman, to bring everything in the creation into subjection to the Father. And he himself, because he is a human being, is subject to the Father. That God may be all in all. Now, if, if that is too nuanced for you, then you have not been told the truth about the gospel. The truth about the gospel is that the fullness of the deity lives in Jesus. Yes, he is deity. He is divine. But he is also a human being. And the first one to set the example of what you are to become. He did it by his own merit. You do it by his merited righteousness to you. Mm. We've reached the place where we're at the end of a message. And I want to start back, I would rather finish where we started. I'd like to take another look at Isaiah 44. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? He has been announcing what we are to become since the beginning. Wow. <laughs> you, you LCM, you one association, you're my witnesses, he says. Wow. Of course, this was originally spoken to Israel. And it was a mystery you could be a part. God wants witnesses that what he said would happen 
did happen and it happened in them. Is there any God besides me? No. There is no other rock I know, not one. He wants a people that honor his Hashem and could care nothing for the gods of this world. Now, that's an easy thing to say if you don't really actually think they exist. Because then it's just a television show you're watching. Then it's just somebody you like to follow. And you don't recognize that you're participating in exactly the same idolatry that Edomites did when they lifted up the shrine to Molech. Exactly the same idolatry everywhere else. We want to remind you, we have 12 statements that you should see when you look in the mirror. We have 12 gates that you walk through to enter the kingdom. Well, tonight... We gave you 10 things that you are or will be. Number one, you will be glorified as he is. Number two, you participate in his rulership of the creation, sitting with him on his throne. Number three, you will have authority over the nations. Number four, you will be the judge to angels. Number five, you will be acknowledged before the Father and His angels. Number six, the lake of fire will not hurt you at all. Number seven, you will live forever eating from the tree of life. Number eight, God will be your God and you will be His Son. Number nine, you will be like Jesus. Number ten, He has called you His witness. Mm -hmm. Now if you didn't know before, then you didn't know. But you know right now, and you will be held responsible for what you know. A talent was just deposited. Now what will you do with it? Tonight is Shavuot. Tonight is Pentecost. You are a witness. Let me see. What does Acts 1.8 say about that? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my Witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. God wants to empower His sons to win this war. He wants to raise you up even as He has raised up Christ. But you got to stand up. you got to want it. you got to hunger for it. 